0: We continue to study God's Word together. That is our stated purpose in this ministry at Good Shepherd Church is to magnify and lift up the name of Jesus through His living and powerful Word. So turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I might make mention of this, that after these weeks that turned into months, we're actually going to finish the first chapter. But I want to say, you know, we are never uh, have it as our goal to get through uh, some portion of God's Word. Uh, the fact is, uh, any preacher could settle on one verse of Scripture in God's Word and spend a lifetime and never reach the full depths of a living and wondrous Word as God's Word is. So we're not in a rush and we're taking our time and every verse is God-breathed and therefore is worthy of our meditation and our thoughtfulness and most certainly it is worthy of our obedience. But we have come now to First Peter chapter 1 and the next verse that we're looking at is verse 22 through to the end of the chapter. You follow along as I read 1 Peter 1 verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass. And all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. You might imagine in my role as a pastor and Bible teacher that I subscribe to any number of journals, uh, published studies that relate to various areas of my endeavor and my calling in life. I have to say that very few of them, after all, are that helpful. And of course, uh, there is no other source of information that could even come close to what God has already revealed in his infallible word. I have a lot of books on my shelves But I keep only basically one on my desk. But in a recent contemporary journal, a full page was dedicated to collecting the responses of people from many different walks of life, age, and religious backgrounds. This month's question in that particular publication was this, does God talk to people today? If so, how? Now, I counted 15 different responses. And I'd like to give you just a few as a sampling of those responses. The question, does God talk to people today? And if so, how? Here were some of the sort of man-on-the-street type interview answers. This person said, I think God speaks to us in some way. You just got to listen close with all your senses. Another person responded, I believe there is a higher power, something else out there with a bigger plan. But I don't spend my time praying, wishing for things to happen. I make it happen. I do it. Another person said, God speaks to us through signs. Just today, when I was walking upstairs from the basement, I was like, um, should I shut off that light? This was a teenager responding to the uh, question. Nah, he said. And then the light flickered. So I was like, that's a sign. I had to shut off that light. Two more responses. This person said, God speaks to us through symbols or signs. My grandma died and my dad asked, If you can hear me, Mom, if you are there, can you give me a sign? A little butterfly came and sat where he was. Now that's a sign. Someone else said, God speaks to us in everyday conversations. That we have. I also think he speaks to me through my cats. Before you think I'm crazy, listen to this. One of our cats was sick. And he had to be put down. Part of it was the vet's fault. So I learned that we had to change vets when our other cat got sick. So we did. And the other cat lived. My wife and I say, it was a sign from God. Now, of course, we know that cat was only in its eighth life. You know, only one person out of 15 who were asked if God speaks to people today. Only one person. And only after first mentioning that God speaks through traditional church history, only one person said that God... Might also speak through the Bible. Now, over against all of the foolishness and so much cloudy thinking, if the apostle Peter had been asked whether God speaks to us, he would have pointed us back to the Bible itself for an unequivocal answer. In fact, Peter, at the end of this first chapter, which we've just read, quotes directly from the pen of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. The Bible says God did speak in times past through the prophets. Now, I want to read for you. I won't have you take the time to turn to it, but I want to read the slightly larger context of Peter's message which was based in Isaiah 40. Uh, Isaiah 40 actually begins with these words. Comfort ye. Comfort ye my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for. A voice... Of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Isaiah goes on. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. Now listen carefully. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And the messenger says to the Lord, what shall I cry? And here comes the words from God himself. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them surely the people are grass. the grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands for forever. Now the New Testament Peter rightly interprets the Old Testament prophet. And is filling in all the blanks, as it were. The Comforty of Isaiah is a message of the gospel. Good news is about to follow. Sins will be atoned. Sins will be paid for. Now that is real comfort, wouldn't you say? That is good news. Your sins are paid for. Isaiah is really saying that the Messiah, Redeemer, will come. John the Baptist will be that voice that Isaiah talked about, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God, John shouts, as Jesus comes to be baptized and will set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem and ultimately a hill called Golgotha. Now, why this emphasis in Isaiah on likening the life of man to flourishing grass which will wither and die? Well, I think spiritually speaking, there could not be a better analogy. Man is granted length of days, and we were here yesterday talking about. Dad Harris, God gave to him 96 and a half years. That grass really grew. And in the beginning, it was green and it was lush and, and full of life. But compared to eternity, the length of years they are few. Because, as Isaiah says, the breath of God blows, and man is swept away like so much straw in the wind. So it raises the question, if a man is to endure the blast of God, the judgment of God, if he is to live again, having died a first death, it must be something that comes outside of man's frail and fruitless existence that will bring eternal life. A living and abiding growth cannot be found intrinsically in the grass which flourishes, but then quickly fades. And that's something both Isaiah and Peter declare is the word of the Lord which endures how long? Forever. Does God speak to people today? Oh, yes. In fact, it is God speaking through His eternal word that causes a sinner to be born again in the first place. Based upon what Peter declares and in, in the rest of the Bible, let me say, were God not speaking today, are you aware there would never be another soul converted to Christ? He must speak the word to the dead in trespasses and sin and say, live. Just as on that day, a man buried for three whole days. Jesus must speak the word. Lazarus, come forth. Or Lazarus would still be in that grave. If God is not commanding salvation by speaking the gospel into the heart of people, then I say, let's call all the missionaries home. And by the way, don't feel like you need to fret another moment about witnessing to a neighbor, family member, or friend. Unless God is still speaking life into hearts. Read again verse 23 here of First Peter 1. You have been born again. How? Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Can't be found in man. Nothing imperishable is found in the blade of grass. It will wither and die. But, that which is imperishable, that new birth comes, Peter says, through the living and enduring Word of God. That's why the life we receive from Christ is called everlasting. It lasts as long as His Word lasts and His Word endures forever. Now, if you believe, and I hope you do, that faith, is a primary issue when it comes to salvation. I hope you believe that a sinner can only be justified by faith in the sight of God. But I want you also to realize this, that saving faith cannot come from a fading, withering blade of grass. No. Now, I want you to say it with me once you... Realize what familiar verse of Scripture I'm about to quote. You finish it with me. And listen carefully as we do this. Faith comes. Not inside there, Steve. It comes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by... There it is. There at the close of verse 25. This is the Word, Peter says which was preached to you. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is God speaking life-giving words. And our task is what? To sweetly echo the gospel call. These wonderful words of life. Now see, you and I can only talk about what? We we may be privileged to lead someone to Christ, right? But only the living seed of the Word of God in the mouth of the living Word, Jesus Christ, can be the one who out of that grants eternal life. Jesus told us in a parable form how a sower goes out to sow and how the seed falls on all kinds of soil. And he explains the parable of the seed in the soils by telling us that the seed is the word of God. It is not grass seed. Such is our natural life. The seed of the word of God is life-giving seed that neither fades nor withers. Whose fruit, by the way, is eternal life. I want you to turn with me to a, to a complimentary text for just a moment. Keep your place there in First Peter 1 and turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Now, the Bible in many places declares itself to be the very Word of God, and it is just that. But this verse in particular, beloved, uh, provides an extraordinary view of the inward workings of the life-giving Word. The verse I refer to is Hebrews 4 and verse 12. It's an amazing verse. It's like looking at God's way of saving a soul under a microscope. Extraordinary. Let's read it together. Hebrews 4.12 And we're answering the question, remember, does God speak to people today? How does he speak? Well, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the very thoughts and the motives, the intentions of the heart. In more modern language, we would say the Bible is God's spiritual scalpel. On some, he performs an autopsy. And he discovers the cause of death. And it's the same with every corpse. It is the wages of sin. But on others, just as dead in and trespasses and sin. He starts again with that spiritual corpse. But according to his mercy, this miracle occurs. The penetrating word of God going all the way down into the soul. If you know how to separate the soul from the spirit, you've got a very fine scalpel, my friends. But God does that, the text says. The penetrating word of God going all the way down into the soul. And before he uh, sows the patient back up, the great physician, healing the soul, plants a seed. And it is a life-giving seed. It's like Lydia recorded in the book of Acts. One of my favorite testimonies recorded in the book of Acts. The apostles preached the word. That's all they could do. And they did it faithfully. And 2,000 more years later, some are still preaching the word faithfully. The apostles preached the word that day. And Lydia was there. We know why she was there. She wasn't even home. She was out of town, but she was there. God arranges such providences, doesn't he? Here's what we read in that text. Listen very carefully. God opened... Her heart to believe. The great physician, wielding the scalpel of his word, does a surgery, doesn't just save a life, produces life that was never there before. The corpse lives. <laughs> And not only that, we know this new life is real and that it wasn't there before because now not only does the sinner live, he begins to love. Now, that's the point Peter makes at verse 22. And I want you to keep verse 22 connected to verse 21. Verse 21 we had studied and it says that it is through Christ that we are believers in God. Do you see that? To whom do you owe your salvation? Not ultimately the sinner's prayer you may have prayed. Not walking down an aisle with goosebumps to the hymn, Just as I am without one plea. And I love all that. Verse 21 says, It was Christ that you came to believe. And then verse 22 says, since you have in obedience to the truth, since you did respond to the truth of the gospel, which purified your souls, now there is this, a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another, he says, from the heart. Why? Next verse. For. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Peter is using analogy and and metaphor by likening the word of God as life-giving, life-changing, life-transforming seed. Unlike the grass seed and all that invasive weeds that grow up, ...of our sin which wither under the righteous blast of God's wrath, this new life principle, this spirit-sown seed, I'd like to put it this way, gives rise to a tree. It's interesting to note in the Old Testament that God's people are identified as trees of righteousness. And the New Testament adds to the picture and says, we are trees of righteousness... Bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which is what, folks? Love. Love, as you know, in Galatians 5, expressing itself in these beautiful characteristics. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I didn't come into this world with any of that. I had to have Christ come into me to produce that genuineness. You know, I think I shall never see a poem as lovely as a spirit wrought tree. What it means and what it looks like to be born again of this incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. It, it, it produces a whole new creature. If any man, any woman, any boy, any girl be in Christ, they are a whole new creation. And this new creation begins to think and to act biblically because the Word itself is in the being. And over time, the miracle of the Gospel begins to actually take form in the life. More and more, that redeemed sinner, begins to look like Jesus himself. An irresistible life that grows out of this living seed. Back in the 1800s, uh, English hymn writer Edwin Hodder knew that God does speak to people and that he most assuredly and accurately speaks through the Bible. He wrote these words, these beautiful poetic words, listen to them. Thy word is like a garden, Lord, with flowers bright and fair, and everyone who seeks may pluck a lovely cluster there. Thy word is like a deep, deep mine, and jewels, rich and rare, are hidden in its mighty depth for every searcher there. Thy word is like a starry host, A thousand rays of light are seen to guide the traveler and make his pathway bright. Thy word is like an armory where soldiers may repair and find for life's long battle day all needful weapons there. And then Hodder applies it all to his own walk with God. He says, oh, may I love thy precious word. May I explore the mine. May I its fragrant flowers glean. May light upon me shine. Oh, may I find my armor there. Thy word, my trusty sword. I'll learn to fight with every foe the battle of the Lord. The Word of God created our life in Him. And also gives us everything necessary for life itself and for godliness. You see, my friends, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. Grass withers. The flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And Peter says, it's his last word there, And this is the word which was preached to you. I think of all the encouraging things that have blessed me the most is when I get to hear or I'm reading about the ways in which God has revealed himself in the saving of sinners. I love to listen to testimonies. We had our last men's fellowship breakfast yesterday, at least until next fall, should the Lord tarry. Over the past months, we heard the testimonies of men who once were lost in sin, but how God worked in them to bring them into the knowledge of the truth. It's a joy every time I hear someone tell their story of God's grace and salvation. One of the great conversion stories goes all the way back into the annals of church history. Just 300 years or so after the birth of Christ, is the spiritual biography of Augustine. those of us living in Florida would pronounce it St. Augustine. The man, Augustine, who would become, by the way, one of the most influential theologians of all time since the age of the apostles, had once lived as a man consumed... With worldly lusts. By his own confession, and that's why the classic work is still available today, it's, it's called Augustine's or Augustine's Confessions. By his own confession, he had given himself passionately to the pursuits of every kind of fleshly indulgence, indulgence until he was bound fast in sin. But he had a godly mother. And like godly mothers today, she devoted even the last years of her life pleading and praying for her son's salvation. I want you to hear in Augustine's own words in which he describes how God used a single verse from the epistle to the Romans to quite suddenly convert him. He had sat himself down under a fig tree one day, quite depressed in his sins. Isn't it amazing we pursue sin because we're convinced it will bring pleasure to Augustine, who became an expert sinner. It brought depression. But he says this on this particular day. I heard the voice as of a boy or girl, I know not which, coming from a neighboring house. Chanting and oft-repeating, Tole lege! Tole lege! Tole lege! Which in the Latin is simply, take up and read. Take up and read. Take up and read. Gustin says, immediately my countenance was changed and I began most earnestly to consider whether it was usual for children in any kind of game to sing such words tole lege take up and read nor could i remember ever to have heard the like so restraining the torrent of my tears i rose up interpreting it no other way than as a command to me from heaven to take up and read to open the book and to read the first chapter, I should light upon. When I rose thence, I grasped the scroll, opened and in silence read that paragraph in the scroll on which my eyes first fell. They were, of course, the words of the Apostle Paul. And they seemed to be just for Augustine. Listen to the text. Not in rioting, and drunkenness not in chambering or wantonness not in strife and envying but put ye on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof that's not exactly john 3:16 but it's what god would use on that day in the life of this man He went on to say, no further would I read, nor did I need. For instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. The Word of God had sown the very seed of the life of Christ into the deepest recesses of His being. And Augustine would say that his own terrible depravity turned out to be no match for God's saving grace. His life totally transformed. That same Augustine wrote volumes of sermons and they're still instructing serious students of the Bible today. I was reminded of Peter's admonition in our text today, there at verse 22, where he says, Since we have been born again, we are to fervently love one another from the heart, uh, the changed heart. Now, Augustine put it this way. As we go about our ministries, he's talking about life within the family of God, the body of Christ. He said, as we go about our ministries, disturbers are to be rebuked. The low-spirited to be encouraged. The infirm to be supported. Objectors confuted. The treacherous guarded against. This sounds like most churches I know about. The unskilled taught. The lazy aroused. The contentious restrained. The haughty repressed. Litigants pacified, the poor relieved, the oppressed liberated, the good approved, the evil put up with. And then he ended this way as he described the average church. And all are to be loved. They are all to be loved. The source, the life-giving word of God, the fruit, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, spilling out even to the most difficult among us, even me. We've considered the Word of God by the analogy of seed. And there is another hymn writer who pictures the Word of God as the life-giving food for the soul. The Bible is the bread of life distributed us by the same hands which fed 5,000. I want you to let this not only be our closing hymn, but our prayer as well. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou didst break the loaves beside the sea. Now here's my favorite line. Beyond the sacred page, that's the living word, I seek thee, Lord, my spirit pants for thee, O living Word. Each of these lines are worth giving our full attention and making it our prayer.